You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Knob. What a day for a daydream. What a day for a daydreaming boy. And I'm lost in a daydream. Dreaming about my bundle of joy. And even if time ain't Hello and welcome to episode 3 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the 1980s Marvel comic series, The Nom. I am your host, Tom Panarese. This time around, I'll be taking a look at issue number 3 of The Nom, as well as the ads, letter column, and sharing some tidbits about the history behind this particular month in the Vietnam War. This issue, if we're following what the writer and editor laid out in the first issue and going in real time, we'll be looking at April of 1966, hence my use a few seconds ago of Daydream by The Love and Spoonful, which hit number one in April of 1966. Three Day Pass is the title of issue number three, which had a February 1987 cover date and hit newsstands on November 11th, 1986. It was written by Doug Murray, penciled by Michael Golden, inked by Armando Gill, lettered and colored by Phil Felix, edited by Larry Hama, and the editor-in-chief was Jim Shooter. The cover, which is by Golden and Gill, shows a photograph labeled April 1966 of Marks, Cruz, and Albergo making silly faces, but it's on fire. Behind the photograph is a matchbook from a club called the Saigon Soiree, and on top of it is a key that says Anne which we'll learn in the issue is the Queen Anne Hotel. We pick up with the boys returning from the jungle and Mark Albergo and Cruz talking about the fact that they finally have three days off and they are going to have nothing to do. Since Cruz is a short timer, Albergo decides to go into the city, Saigon, to give his friend a proper send-off. They check with Sarge, who is okay with the idea, but who reminds them that he's not the gatekeeper. It's Top. The guys pool their money, and some of the money they won from other guys in the card game, much to the other guy's chagrin, and they go to see Top, with Albergo telling Top that Cruz is short, and, well, they want to give him a great time before he has to send him back in the world. Top grants the request, I'm sure the bribe helped too, and soon the guys land via chopper on the lawn of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. The city is a bustling, noisy metropolis, and Marx is just about as wide-eyed as he was the first day he arrived in the jungle. Albergo and Cruz point out that you can buy just about anything in Saigon, including women, and the three head to a movie theater that's showing a martial arts movie in Chinese. This is not necessarily their choice of action. Well, Marx is pretty psyched, but there's really no bars open at the moment, so they figure they can go in there and kill some time. Marx goes up to the counter to see what to buy what he thinks is going to be popcorn, but the guys tell him that it's not popcorn, it's snails, and they take him into the theater before he can make a regretful purchase. As they're watching the movie, someone opens the door to the theater and throws a backpack inside, realizing that this person just threw a bomb into the theater. The three GIs duck as the theater blows up. They leave the scene before the MPs arrive and head to a bar named the Saigon Soiree, where they find a table and are quickly approached by two very beautiful Vietnamese women. Albergo and Cruz have the girls sitting on their laps in no time, and a third joins them, and she approaches Marx, who, well, is a little nervous. The girl leads him outside so they have some place to talk, but it's a trap. She smacks him over the head. 
When he comes to, Albergo and Cruz explain that they stopped her before she could rob him, and hopefully, well, she might have killed him. She picked up on the fact that he was so green, and that made him an easy mark. Seeing that they've had enough action for one day, they then take what money they have and spend it on hotel rooms at the Queen Anne. Marx is especially happy because he hasn't slept on real sheets in what seems like forever, and quickly goes to to sleep, dreaming about the war and the woman who had previously knocked him unconscious in an alley. While he's asleep, two guys are up to something. One of them says, Now! He presses a button. That brings down the entire top half of the hotel. Marx wakes up and is trapped in his room, but he's okay. Albergo yells through the wall that he's alright, but neither of them is able to figure out if Cruz is alive. Marx grabs a fallen beam and he uses it to smash through a hole in the wall between his, him and Cruz's room, and then he gets to Cruz's side. Realizing that Cruz is hurt but alive, Marx goes to get help. He finally gets the attention of local firefighters, and they get the three of them out of the burning building. Later at the hospital, Cruz is banged up, but it works to his advantage because the army has decided since that he's injured and also a short-timer, they're just going to send him home now instead of waiting for his tour of duty to end. The guys joke around a little bit, and then Cruz very seriously thanks them for everything. Albergo and Marx get ready to head home when they're met by a reporter and photographer for Stars and Stripes who want to report how, how heroic they were in the hotel because they saved Cruz. The two of them shove the photographer aside, not wanting to be labeled as heroes, because it's not why they helped their friend. They didn't do it for the attention. They did it because their friend was in trouble. Once back, they head to their barracks to get some sleep. Home sweet hooch, as one of them says. And they're immediately woken up by a rocket attack, and they have to get to the bunkers. Marx rolls out of bed and says, Jeez, if it isn't one thing... I like how in these three issues that we've had, we've had different scenarios with Ed Marks and his friends. Uh, this time around, it's a little R&R. You can see how there was a lot of terrorist activity going on in addition to the combat that typified the war. Now, I, I follow the, the, con- the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan you know, through what I, what I see in the news and what I've read in the newspaper and what have you and, and heard from, from different people. And this doesn't, what I'm reading here doesn't seem very different than what we've actually seen out of recent conflicts in other countries, where there is a fair share of suicide bombings, other attacks on both civilians and troops in cities and towns and what have you. So it's not all contained to the battlefields the way you might expect from, I don't know, an older war. The bombing in the movie theater and the hotel are, are like scenes that we have actually seen out and played in movies about Vietnam, such as uh, Good Morning Vietnam, which I think came out after this issue. I think Good Morning Vietnam was a big summer hit in 87, and this is the uh, the end of 86 here. And and that is the, there is a bombing there, and, and that is one of the more serious parts of that particular film. Murray gives us the gravity of the situation here, too. And it's that these guys obviously knew that they were going over there to fight a war. But there's this sense that none of them are truly safe. Even even on their downtime, even during the times when they should be able to, um, I don't want to say enjoy themselves, but not have to think about these things, the war intrudes. And I think that's the best way to describe it. it, it the, the war intrudes, you know. 
that they're away from the battlefield. They're in the middle of, of a city, and, and this is happening. And it seems like they're being tailed by the people who are the terrorists, which is very possible. You know, they're, they're American GIs in the Southeast Asian city. You know, they, they would stick out a little bit. But but Murray doesn't lay it on too thick. He actually gives us a fair sh- or fair share of levity as well, and I and I like that, um, especially the part where Cruz is like, "Well, this is a blessing in disguise." I mean, there you. I think perhaps you have to find humor in things like this sometimes, and and I think Murray and Golden really imbue that into a couple of these characters in these situations, and they do it very well. The conflict between Sarge and Top is touched on. Uh, Sarge sending the boys to top and the guys knowing that they need to get enough money to pay. Sarge says to the guys, top says no passes with that is okay. You'll have to talk to the fat. And then the line cuts off because, well, this is a comic code approved book and they cut to the next scene. Golden and Gill's artwork capture the electric feel of a bustling city, by the way. Uh, They have them touch down in in the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, right on the lawn, where about nine years later we'd see an opposite scene. And they walk out into Saigon, and it is like if you've ever walked out of of Grand Central or Penn or a subway station in like New York, and you come upon the city, it, it has that feel. With with New York, you can you can hear the bustle, and I want to say Gershwin wrote Rhapsody in Blue based on what his experience in New York, but he might have done it for Chicago. But but that's sort of... I can hear the I can hear a Gershwin soundtrack. If you've ever heard Rhapsody in Blue, you know what I'm talking about. It's just very bustling and pissy music. And and, and the noise, just the noise of the city kind of washing over you. And, and I get that feeling coming into the scene where Marks and, and the guys walk into Saigon. You know, they, they land in there and you see uh, you see a splash, you see the chopper in the foreground in the middle of the, of the splash page are very small of Albergo, Marx and Cruz and Albergo. It's obviously Albergo saying Saigon! And beyond the gates of the embassy are traffic buildings, a cathedral what have you. And then they cut right to the next thing and Albergo says well Ed, what do you think? And you know, you see you see cars and people on bicycles and people at a market and and uh, and, and kids running around and, and Marx just has this wide eye look at his face. He says it's unbelievable and it's just this this scene of like when you walk into a city, especially if you're not acclimated to that city uh, as of yet, you know, unlike being a commuter, because I commuted into Washington D.C. for a number of years, and there are times when that sort of wonder of Washington D.C. still hit me. Um, I still love going to D.C. I still love going down to the National Mall, but even in the middle of the city, city part of D.C. up in Northwest, I was I was working in an office in Dupont Circle. Every once in a while, I would get that sort of feeling of, wow, this is the city. But you get conditioned to it after a while. You can walk up out of the escalator or the metro or the subway in the city and just kind of be like, all right, you know, and get to work and, and do whatever. But then there are times when you do kind of walk out and you just, it's almost like you have to adjust your eyes and your senses to the fact that there's just so much going on around you at once. And I think that they really, really capture that in these scenes. Uh especially with Marx being our primary character because he's still this kid and and I think and I really really like that. I also like that well Marx doesn't get completely lost. He's got Albergo and Cruz with him and he doesn't get himself killed because they're looking out for him. Uh and there's this girl who gets him in trouble. And if you've ever read the Robin mini series from 1990 or listened to my episodes of Taking Flight, which you can find at the batmanuniverse.net Taking Flight 
plug. I covered the Robin miniseries that Chuck Dixon did oh, a few episodes ago, and there's a scene where Tim sees this girl getting roughed up by her boyfriend in a bar, and Tim will decides that he's going to intervene and be the gentleman here. And he gets the crap kicked out of him. And then he gets the crap kicked out of him by her because she's a member of a gang. And those guys are the member of the gang. And she's actually really, you know, the smart one of the gang and what have you. And it's just, you know, when keeping it real goes wrong. So if you're if you're new to a city, try to avoid getting smacked around. Uh, but really, there's a blending of comedy and seriousness in this issue that I think works very well. Uh, we've got the snails bit at the movie theater, and, and it's as serious, I guess, as Ed's robbery might be. It's actually, I think it's being played for laughs, because you know he's not going to get killed. Uh, he just gets basically gets mugged. And then you have the bombing of the hotel, which is very serious and very dangerous. So Murray and Golden seem to be going light moment, heavy moment, light moment, heavy moment. Kind of a kind of a wave to, so that the audience can catch its breath, but the audience can kind of see both sides to something like this. And and the fact that, like I said, the violence is kind of underpinning all of this. The idea that that you can never escape this war while you're over there as much as you try. I think it shows a little bit of character development, by the way. On the part of Ed Marks, when the Stars and Stripes reporter tries to take their pictures, and he's the one who says, Heroes, for pulling a friend out of a wreck of a hotel? What kind of place is this? It's not completely cynical yet, but he's not as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as he was when he got on that plane in January of 66, at the beginning of issue 1. And we will see in issue 4, when a television or documentary crew television crew come he's still pretty psyched about getting publicity but this just didn't sit right with him being called a hero for the fact that he just did what was right he wasn't out for the publicity uh and of course the scene at the end with the rocket attack and mark saying jeez if it isn't one thing it's a great note to end on because they were supposed to get rest and relaxation and they got neither and and it's just kind of fun to see that even when they get back and they're like oh i can sleep in my own bed and you're just no because if you've ever done that i mean i've never been off to war but we've all been on vacation and the bed might be uncomfortable you get home and you get to sleep in your own bed and that's one of the best night sleeps you've ever had but you know what this is what he's kind of thinking of and then all of a sudden it's interrupted because there's a rocket attack <laughs> so there you go when i come back i'll do the history i'll do the letter column and i'll do the ads hey kids comics hey michael yeah we need to do a new promo a new one? A new one. Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? Yeah. And we're back. I did a little bit of research on the Queen Anne Hotel in Saigon. Uh, there is a hotel in Ho Chi Minh City, which is what is the official name of, of Saigon ever since 75. Uh, there is a hotel named the Queen Anne, but according to the website, its grand opening was in 2010. So if there was a Queen Anne Hotel in Vietnam in the 1960s, I don't know. Um, but it could have been, again, 
Uh, there's also no listing for a bar or club called the Saigon Soiree. So, and again, you don't... Um, Murray and Gold, Murray's making references to it could be just about anything and uh, you know using fictitious places in a real city. It's common practice for a writer. I, I was writing something. Uh, I was actually writing a book and it's just not um, available anyway. So don't get you know <laughs> don't worry. Uh, you're not going to be subjected to that writing yet. Uh, it t- which takes place in the Washington D.C. area, but most of the places that I have, as far as like let's say restaurants and stuff, are have fake names, even if they are based on real places. And I think it it helps, you know, that in Murray's case, uh, you don't have to be a slave to accuracy in that regard. You can get the atmosphere, you can get the situation, what have you, right? But you can play around with the setting to the to meld it to the. Uh, Story where you find it appropriate. Because he is drawing on his own personal experience from the war anyway. History-wise, April 6th of 66 saw the further escalation of troops in Vietnam. By April 25th, the United States committed 250,000 troops to the Vietnam War. Uh, April 12th saw that the U.S. began sending B-52 bombers into North Vietnam for the first time. Protests continued, especially within South Vietnam, over the policies of the government. On April 8th, Buddhists in South Vietnam protested against the fact that the new government had not set a date for free election. Uh, As a result, on April 14th, the government announced it would promise elections, or said the elections would be happening within three to five months. In a bit of non-war-related history, but a fun little something or other, the Church of Satan was formed by Anton LaVey in San Francisco on April 30th, because you know you needed to know that. Uh, incoming for this month did start having a few letters about issue number one, and what I like about this, or you know, or at least what Marvel is printing, is that you have people whose parents were in Vietnam. That's the first one. You have people who were vets and. You have people asking questions already. Some letter writers are working their politics in, although I still get the chance that Murray and Golden are trying to keep this a little bit apolitical. I'm really not trying to get anything to uh, one side or the other. They're just trying to show the war for what it is. The letters pages, however, are fascinating to read in this book because that's where there will be some interesting discussions between um, whoever's writing the notes... And whoever is writing the letters, I think it would be Doug Murray, and then and maybe some of the editors from time to time. Um, for instance, we've got one letter, Mr. Hama. Congratulations on your project, The Nam. It's about some sometimes someone told the folks back home here in the world just how dinky dow the whole scene over there really was. I did my turn in sixty seven sixty eight as an O two at Trigdakau camp on the Cambodian border. Like your art, love the storyline. So much for the love letter for now from why I'm writing. While the Hanoi Hannah and Jane Fonda would like to have us believe that the Viet Cong from the southern part of Vietnam were the enemy, the real enemy were the North Vietnamese. Most VC units never really were never really staffed with an assigned corps of NVA and fleshed out with often unwilling local conscripts. Your use of the Cong and your show of the Viet Cong superimposed on the outline of North Vietnam served to further confuse the issue. I would hope that you would give some background on how the whole war developed, starting with the French and our own early involvement in the 50s. Keep up the good work. I'll be with you for the whole war. James Jerry Berryhill, PhD from uh, Atlanta, Georgia. The editor responds, or maybe it's Doug Murray, 
The use of the VC flag was deliberate. In 66, Charlie was definitely the enemy. Only later did the general perception of the situation change. As for background in the early days, we'll try to work it in, but only as background. It would not make it as an interesting part of the ongoing story. Funny enough, issue 7 is almost like a whole background origin history lesson about the Vietnam War. It's, it's a fascinating issue, and I'll obviously be covering it in a few episodes. Another letter, uh, this one from um, from a uh, from another soldier. Dear Mr. Hammer, I have finished your first issue of The Nom, and I am pleased. Some of the background shots looked all too familiar, even after all these years, and the story was a very familiar one to anyone who was wherever the the greenie in any outfit anywhere. I hope to see this magazine to continue to tell this true story as close as you can within the code. Some truth may come through. Come through. War is not a game. It is not Rambo or G.I. Joe. It means blood, sweat, and pain, eventually death or maiming if you're not lucky. You said that some or all the other characters uh, would go back into the world after 12 issues. Perhaps you could also tell what happened after they came home to the land of the big of the big PX. I know the way it was for me. I was there from January 65 to April 66 before I was wounded and evac'd out. I wish you a long, successful run until it's time to go. Make mine marvel. I have since 61. C.R. Labrie, ex-Sergeant First Class, 5th SFGA, USA, retired. A lot of praise about the fact that it's a war comic and how realistic it is. And it's interesting. What I like are... um, what I like are the fact that you get a wide variety of people who would read and listen and, and read and write into the comic, from vets to families of vets to son, you know, sons and daughters and and or just kids who were reading comics and found something interesting in this realism. So from time to time, I will definitely go through this and give you a give you some some of the letters that are written uh nom notes for this month you had we've had hooch kp mp of course is a military police rolled uh means robbed probably started because people rolled their victims onto their backs to get at their wallets sapped hit over the head in this case usually with a blackjack short almost anything in at almost at the end of a tour short for a short time or a short time remaining spec five specialist fifth grade is equivalent to a buck sergeant and the world, of course, is uh, the USA. Ads for this issue: a couple of ads we've already had: M and M's, Laser Tag, Gumby and Pokey, Yamaha, some other stuff. Um, there's an East Coast Comics ad, and this was a place that I always wanted to order from because I used to look through their ads like crazy when I bought comics back in the day. Um, them and Mile High Comics, which actually there is an ad for Mile High Comics uh, a couple of pages after that. And East Coast Comics, by the way, is still in business like Mile High. Uh, but, you know, they, they these people had, like, reasonable prices, and you could send, like, you know, get a catalog and what have you. Um, I eventually did order, used to order from Mile High Comics quite a bit uh, during the during the nineties, uh, there's a hodgepodge ad for various comics places. There, like I said, there's Mile High. There's always a couple of other ones. You have the. This is when they were still running the Marvel Supermart ads uh, in the book, kind of telling you what stores you could buy in Marvel comics and what have you. There is. Oh, you can finish your high school diploma at home. 
Let's see, I wasted four years of my life. Oh, and you can get muscles! Muscles! In seven days! I love the Charles Atlas ad. Um, it's just, it's such a great one, because it's, it's such a, just a staple of comics. Um, I wonder if they're still around. There's a universe, new universe, Super Sleuth Sweepstakes. Hope you've been reading your new universe books closely because it's time to test your knowledge. Listed below are questions concerning the first four issues of all eight titles. Answer them all correctly and you could be a winner. Grand prize, one grand prize, 12 month subscription to all eight new universe titles plus original new universe artwork in a red Marvel jacket. Four first prizes, six month subscription to all eight new universe titles plus a red Marvel jacket. Ten second prizes, 12 month subscription to the new universe title of your choice plus a red Marvel jacket. Ten third prizes, a six month subscription to the new universe title of your choice plus a red Marvel cap. And there's like for instance Starbrand Ken's first battle using the power of the Starbrand ended A in downtown Pittsburgh B in the Laurel Mountains C on a moon D at a slag dump Justice for which law enforcement agency does Rebecca Chambers work Department of Labor Department of Welfare Services Department of Justice Department of Health Education and Welfare the rules were that you'd send this in and there'd be chosen winners are chosen randomly from those entries in which all questions have been answered correctly. Your chance of winning would depend on the total number of entry forms received. And they must be received by January fifth, eighty seven. I mean they were really pushing this new universe thing, weren't they? No wonder Shooter got canned. Um there's a classic illustrated ad, another hard hodgepodge ad. Uh bulletin bullpen bulletins. Um and I know I read the one last week, last episode. I feel like I gotta read it this one too because I think Shooter's starting to fall off the edge and into the abyss. Really, I mean, here we go. About ten years ago, a lawyer friend of mine told me that I could sue DC Comics for more for a million dollars or more. The lawyer, a lady who'd worked in the comics business for many years, had discovered that I'd started writing professionally for DC Comics in 1965 when I was 13 years old and had written many dozens of stories of DC's top-selling titles while I was between the ages of 13 and 18. Because I was a minor, she said, the legal agreements that I'd signed granting DC ownership of the stories I'd written and the characters i created, two of which were featured in their own series, were meaningless. She told me that I owned these stories and would be entitled to all the income DC had received from licensing them for publication worldwide or statutory copyright damages, whichever was greater. She said the case was airtight and urged me to pursue it. I never even considered it for a moment. You see, I've been offered the same deal as everybody else in the comics those days, a minor or not. I understood it perfectly. Moreover, I had agreed to it enthusiastically, thrilled to have the chance to write comics, and very glad to be paid what I was paid because my family needed that money. It wouldn't be right to go back on the deal. Recently, a reporter from Phoenix asked me, do you think your comics provide a good role models for younger readers? It's a pretty good standard question, and I gave the standard answer, that providing a good role models is not our goal. We don't try to preach morals of values. Business, we feel, best left to parents and educators. We're entertainers. Our business is telling good stories. He seemed happy with that answer, and the interview moved on. Since then, I've given that the subject more thought. The fact that a good story must leave the reader with something more than what he started with, a thought, an idea, an insight. 
What thoughts and ideas and insights were conveyed to me when I was a reader? The Amazing Spider-Man was my favorite title back then. I identified with Peter Parker because he and his Aunt May had money troubles just like my family did. Often his need was desperate, and he was faced with the choice between doing the self-servant, expedient thing and doing the right thing. He wasn't a paragon. Once or twice he slipped. Hey, he was only human. But you know I could tell that he learned from his mistakes, and in the end, when it counted, he always chose to do the right thing. My lawyer's friend's name came up in conversation conversation the other day, reminding me of my choice not to sue DC. It occurred to me that when Peter Parker wouldn't have done it either. Jim Shooter, Editor-in-Chief. I wonder if this is some sort of passive-aggressive response to something about, I don't know, like Jack Kirby or Steve Dicko or somebody suing Marvel for rights or whatever. Uh, it was a few... 86 was a few years before the uh, McFarlane... Uh, Lee Lithel image comics uh, split. So I don't know, but it's like okay, Jim. Yeah. You go. Um, but yeah. The. Um, beyond that, that's about it. I'll be back in two weeks with issue four of the NOM. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great night. Woke up today. It's time sweet dream cause she's the one makes me feel this way and even if time you have been listening to in country a podcast that covers marvel comics the nom the nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright marvel comics and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and i make no money off of it no infringement is intended Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. You may pick up your ears Or you may be daydreaming for a thousand years What a day for a daydream Custom made for a daydreaming boy Now I'm lost in a daydream Dreaming about my bundle of joy